Part One of Sentry of the Sky by Evelyn E. Smith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Nelson. Sentry of the Sky, Part One. Clary had checked in at Classification Center so many times that he came now more out of habit than hope. He didn't even look at the card that the test machine dropped into his hand until he was almost to the portway. And then he stopped. Report to Room 33 for reclassification, it said. Ten years before, Clary would have been ecstatic, sure that the reclassification could be only in one direction. The machine had not originally given him a job commensurate with his talents. Why should it suddenly recognize them? He'd known of people who had been reclassified, always downward. "'I'm a perfectly competent sub-archivist,' he told himself. "'I'll fight.' But he knew fighting wouldn't help. All he had was the right to refuse any job he could claim was not in his line. The government would then be obligated to continue his existence. There were many people who did subsist on the government dole, the aged and the deficient and the defective, and creative artists who refused to trammel their spirits and chose to be ranked as unemployables. Clary didn't fit into those categories. Dispiritedly, he passed along innumerable winding corridors and up and down ramps that twisted and turned to lead into other ramps and corridors. That was the way all public buildings were designed. It was forbidden for the government to make any law-abiding individual think the way it wanted him to think. But it could move him in any direction it chose, and sometimes that served its purpose as well as the reorientation machines. So the corridors he passed through were in constant eddying movement, with a variety of individuals bent on a variety of objectives. For the most part, they were of low echelon status though occasionally an upper echelon flashed his peremptory way past. Even though most L.E.s attempted to ape the U.E. dress and manner, you could always tell the difference. You could tell the difference among the different levels of L.E., too, and there was no mistaking the unemployables in their sober gray habits, devoid of ornament. It was, Clary sometimes thought when guilt feelings bothered him, the most aesthetic of costumes. The machine in room 33 extracted whatever information it was set to receive, then spewed Clary out and sent him on his way to rooms 34, 35, and 36, where other machines repeated the same process. Room 37 proved to be that rare thing in the hierarchy of rooms, a destination. There was a human employment commissioner in it, splendidly garbed in crimson silvet and alexandrites, very upper echelon indeed. He wore a gold mask, a common practice with celebrities who were afraid of being overwhelmed by their admirers, an even more common practice with U.E. non-celebrities who enjoyed the thrill of distinguished anonymity. Then Clary stopped looking at the commissioner. There was a girl sitting next to him, on a high-backed chair like his. Clary had never seen a U.E. girl so close before. Only the greater archivists had direct contact with the public, and Clary wasn't likely to meet a U.E. socially, even if he'd had a social life. 
The girl was too fabulous for him to think of her as a woman, a female, but he would have liked to have her in his archives, in the glass case with the rare editions. "'Good morning, sub-archivist Clary,' the man said mellowly. "'Good of you to come in. There's rather an unusual position open, and the machines tell us you're the one man who can fill it. Please sit down.' He indicated a small, hard stool. Clary remained standing. "'I've been a perfectly competent sub-archivist,' he declared. "'If MacFingle has—if there has been any complaints, I should have been told first. There have been no complaints. The reclassification is upward. You mean, I've made it as a musician, Clary cried, sinking to the hard little stool in joyful agony. Well, no, not exactly a musician. But it's a highly artistic type of job with possible musical overtones. Clary became a hollow man once more. No matter what it was, if it wasn't as duly accredited musician, it didn't matter. The machine could keep him from putting his symphonies down on tape, but it couldn't keep them from coursing in his head. That it could never take away from him. Or the resultant headache, either. "'What is the job, then?' he asked dully. "'A very important position, sub-archivist. In fact, the future welfare of this planet may depend on it.' It's a trick to make me take a job nobody else wants," Clary sneered. And it must be a pretty rotten job for you to go to so much trouble. The girl, whom he'd almost forgotten, gave a little laugh. Her eyes, he noticed, were hazel. There were L.E. girls, he supposed, who also had hazel eyes, but a different hazel. Perhaps this will convince you of the job's significance," the interviewer said huffily. He took off his mask and looked at Clary with anticipation. He had a sleek, ordinary, middle-aged to elderly face. There was an awkward interval. "'Don't you recognize me?' he demanded. Clary shook his head. The girl laughed again. "'A blow to my ego, but proof that you're the right man for this job. I'm General Spano. This is my mistress, Secretary Han Vollard. The girl inclined her head. "'At least you must know my name,' Spano said querulously. "'I've heard it,' Clary admitted. "'The Fiend of Fomalhaut, they call you.' He went on before he could catch himself and stop the words. The girl clapped her hand over her mouth, but the laughter spilled out over and around it. Pretty U.E. laughter. Spano finally laughed, too. It's a phrase that might be used about any military man. One carries out one's orders to the best of one's ability." "'Besides,' Clary observed in a non-archivistic manner, "'what concern have I with your military morality?' "'He's absolutely perfect for the job, Steph,' she cried. "'I didn't think the machines were that good.' "'We mustn't underestimate the machines, Han,' Spano said. "'They're efficient, very efficient. Some day they'll take over from us." "'There are some things they'll never be able to do,' she said. Her hazel eyes lingered on Clary's. "'Aren't you glad, archivist?' "'Sub-archivist,' he corrected her frostily. "'And I hadn't really thought about it.' "'That's not what the machines say, sub-archivist,' 
she told him, her voice candy-sweet. "'They deprobed your mind. You don't do anything, but you've thought about it a lot, haven't you?' Carrie felt the blood surge up. "'My thoughts are my own concern. You haven't the right to use them to taunt me.' "'But I think you're attractive,' she protested. "'Honestly, I do. In a different way. Just go to a good tailor, put on a little weight, dye your hair, and—and I wouldn't be different any more,' Clary finished. That wasn't true. He would always be different. Not that he was deformed, just unappealing. He was below average height, and his eyes and hair and skin were too light. In the past, he knew, there had been pale races and dark races on earth. With the discovery of other intelligent life-forms to discriminate against together, the different races had fused into a swarthy unity. Of course he could hide his etiolation with dye and cosmetics, but those of really good quality cost more than he could afford, and cheap maquillage was worse than none. Besides, why should his appearance mean anything to anybody but himself? He'd had enough beating around the bush. Would you mind telling me exactly what the job is? "'Intelligence agent,' said Spano. "'Isn't it exciting?' she put in. "'Aren't you thrilled?' Clary bounced angrily from his chair. "'I won't sit here and be ridiculed.' "'Why ridiculed?' Spano asked. "'Don't you consider yourself an intelligent man?' "'Being an intelligence agent has nothing to do with intelligence,' Clary said furiously. "'The whole thing's silly.' straight out of the tri-dyes. "'What do you have against the tri-dyes, sub-archivist?' Spano's voice was very quiet. "'Don't you like any of them?' the girl said. "'I just adore sentries of the sky.' Her enthusiasm was tinged obscurely with warning. "'Well, I enjoy it, too,' Clary said, sinking back to the stool. "'It's very entertaining.' but I'm sure it isn't meant to be taken seriously." "'Oh, but it is, sub-archivist Clary,' Spano said. "'Centuries of the Sky happens to be produced by my bureau. We want the public to know all about our operations, or as much as it's good for them to know, and they find it more palatable in fictionalized form.' "'Documentaries always get low ratings,' the girl said, "'and you can't really blame the public. Documentaries are dull. Myself, I like a love interest." Her eyes rested lingeringly on Clary's. They must think I'm a fool, Clary thought. Yet why would they bother to fool me? But am I given to understand, he said to Spano, even by the tri-dyes, that an intelligence agent needs special training, special qualifications? In this case, the special qualifications outweigh the training and you have the qualifications we need for de Morlin. According to the machines, all I'm qualified for is human filing cabinet. Is that what you want?" Spano was growing impatient. "'Look, Clary, the machines have decided that you are not a musician. Do you want to remain a sub-archivist for the rest of your days, or will you take this other road? Once you're on a U.E. level, you can fight the machines. Tape your own music if you like." Clary said nothing, but his initial hostility was ebbing slowly away. "'I wanted to be a writer,' Spano said. The machines said no. 
So I became a soldier, rose to the top. Now, this is in strictest confidence, I write most of the episodes of Sentries of the Sky myself. There's always another route for the man with guts and vision, and above all, faith. Why don't we continue the discussion over lunch? It was almost unthinkable for L.E. and U.E. to eat together. For Clary this was an honor, too great an honor, and there was no way out of it. Spano and the girl put on their masks. The general touched a section of the wall and it slid back. There was a car waiting for them outside. It skimmed over the delicately wrought, immensely strong bridges that, together with the tunnels, linked the great glittering metropolis into a vast, efficient whole. Spano was not really broad-minded. Although they went to the Aurora Borealis, it was through a side door, and they were served in a private dining-room. Clary was glad and nettled at the same time. The first few mouthfuls of the food tasted ambrosial. Then it cloyed and Clary had to force it down with a thin, almost astringent pale blue liquid. In itself the liquor had only a mild, slightly pungent taste, but it made everything else increasingly delightful. The warm, luxurious little room, the perfume that wafted from the air-conditioning ducts, Han Vollard. Martian mountain wine, she warned him. Rather overwhelming if you're not used to it, and sometimes even if you are. Her eyes rested on the general. But there are no mountains on Mars, Clary said, startled. That's it, Span chortled. When you've drunk it, you see mountains. And he filled his glass again. While they ate, he told Clary about de Morland, its beautiful climate, light gravity, intelligent and civilized natives. Though the planet had been known for two decades, no one from Earth had ever been there except a few selected government officials, and, of course, the regular staff posted there. "'You mean it hasn't been colonized yet?' Clary was relieved, because he felt he should, as an archivist, have known more about the planet than its name and coordinates. "'Why? It sounds like a splendid place for a colony.' "'The natives,' Spano said. There were natives on a lot of the planets we colonized. You disposed of them somehow." "'By coexistence in most cases, sub-archivist,' Spano said dryly. "'We found it best for Terrans and natives to live side by side in harmony. We dispose of a race only when it's necessary for the greatest good. And we would especially dislike having to dispose of the Damorlenti.' "'What's wrong with them?' Clary asked pushing away his half-finished creme brulee a la Betelgeuse with a sigh. Are they excessively belligerent, then? No more belligerent than any intelligent life-form that has pulled itself up by its bootstraps. Rigid? Clary suggested. Unadaptable? Intolerant? Indolent? Personally offensive? Spano smiled. He leaned back with half-shut eyes, as if this were a guessing game. None of those. Then why consider disposing of them? Clary asked. They sound pretty decent for natives. Don't wipe them out. Even an ilf has a right to live. Clary, the girl said, you're drunk. I'm in full command of my faculties, he assured her. My wits are all about me, 
moving me to ask how you could possibly expect to use a secret agent on de Morlin if there are no colonists. What would he disguise himself as? A Turing Earth official? He laughed with modest triumph. Spano smiled. He could disguise himself as one of them. They're humanoid. That humanoid? That humanoid. So, there you have the problem in a nutshell. But Clary still couldn't see that there was a problem. I thought we, the human race, that is, were supposed to be the very apotheosis of life species. So we are, and that's the impression we've conveyed to such other intelligent life-forms as we've taken under our aegis. What we're afraid of is that the other ilfs might become confused when they see the Damorlenti, think they're the ruling race. Leaning forward, he pounded so loudly on the table both the others jumped. This is our galaxy, and we don't intend that anyone, humanoid or otherwise, is going to forget it. You're drunk too, Steph, the girl said. She had changed completely. Her coquetry had dropped as if it were another mask. And it had been, Clary thought, an advertising mask. An offer had been made, and, if he accepted it, he would get probably not Han herself, but a reasonable facsimile. He tried to sort things out in his whizzing brain. But why should the other ilfs ever see a Demorlant? he asked, enunciating very precisely. I've never seen another life-form to speak of. I thought the others weren't allowed off-planet, except the Balutes. There's no mistaking them, is there?" For the Balutes, although charming, were unmistakably non-human, being purplish, amiable, and octopoid. "'We don't forbid the Ilfs to go off-planet,' Spano proclaimed. "'That would be tyrannical. We simply don't allow them passage in our spaceships. Since they don't have any of their own, they can't leave." Then you're afraid that Demorlanti will develop space travel on their own," Clary cried. Superior race, seeking after knowledge, spread their wings and soar to the stars. He flapped his arms and fell off the stool. Really, Steph, Han said, motioning for the servo-mechanism to pick Clary up. This is no way to conduct an interview. I am a creative artist the general said thickly. I believe in suiting the interview to the occasion. Clary understands, for he too is an artist." The general sneezed and rubbed his nose with his silver sleeve. "'Listen to me, boy. The Damorlanti are a fine, creative, productive race. It isn't generally known, but they developed the outfastener for evening wear. Two of the new scents on the roster came from Damorlan and the Snedis is an adaptation of a de Morland original. Would you want a species as artistic as that to be annihilated by an epidemic?" "'Do our germs work on them?' Clary wanted to know. "'That hasn't been established yet. But their germs certainly work on us,' the general sneezed again. "'That's where I got this sinus trouble, last voyage to de Morland. But you'll be inoculated, of course. Now we know what to watch out for, so you'll be perfectly safe. That is, as far as disease is concerned." His face assumed a stern, noble aspect. 
Naturally, if you're discovered as a spy, we'll have to repudiate you. You must know that from the Tridies." "'But I haven't said I would go,' Clary howled. "'And I can't see why you'd want me anyway.' "'Modest,' the general said, lighting a smokestick. "'An admirable trait in a young intelligence operative, or indeed anyone. Have a smokestick?' Clary hesitated. He had never tried one. He had always wanted to. "'Don't, Clary,' the girl advised. "'You'll be sick.' She spoke with authority and reason. Clary shook his head. The general inhaled and exhaled a cloud of smoke in the shape of a bunnet. "'The Demorlenti look like us, but because they look like us, that doesn't mean they think like us. They may not have the least idea of developing space travel, simply be interested in developing thought, art, ideals, splendid cultural things like that. We don't know enough about them. We may be making mountains out of molehills." "'Martian molehills,' Clary snickered. "'Precisely,' the general agreed. Except that there are no moles on Mars, either." "'But I still can't understand. Why me?' The general leaned forward and said in a confidential tone, "'We want to understand the true de Morlan. Our observations have been too superficial. Couldn't help being. There we come, blasting out of the skies with the devil of a noise, running all over the planet as if we owned it. You know how those sky-boys throw their gravity around?' Clary nodded. Sentries of the sky had kept him well informed on such matters. So, what we want is a man who can go to De Morland for five or ten years and become a De Morland in everything but basic loyalties. A man who will absorb the very spirit of the culture, but in terms our machines can understand and interpret. Spano stood erect. You, Clary, are that man. The girl applauded. Well done, Steph. You finally got it right side up. But I've lived twenty-eight years on this planet, and I'm not a part of its culture," Clary protested. I'm a lonely, friendless man. You must know that if you've deep-probed me. So why should I put up a front and be brave and proud about it?" Then he gave a short, bitter laugh. I see. That's the reason you want me. I have no roots, no ties. I belong nowhere. Nobody loves me. Who else, you think, but a man like me would spend ten years on an alien planet as an alien?" "'A patriot, sub-archivist,' the general said sternly. "'By God, sir, a patriot!' "'There's nothing I'd like better than to see Terra and all its colonies go up in smoke.' "'Mind you,' Clary added quickly, for he was not as drunk as all that, "'I've nothing against the government. It's a purely personal grievance." The general unsteadily patted his arm. "'You're detached, my boy. You can examine an alien planet objectively, without trying to project your own cultural identity upon it, because you have no cultural identity.' "'How about physical identity?' Clary asked. "'They can't be exa exactly like us, against the laws of nature.' 
The laws of man are higher than the laws of nature, the general said, waving his arm. A gout of smoke curled around his head and became a halo. Very slight matter of plastic surgery. We'll change you back as soon as you return. Then he sat down heavily. How many young men in your position get an opportunity like this? Permanent U.E. status, a hundred thousand credits a year, and, of course, on De Morland, you'll be on an expense account. Our money's no good there. By the time you got back, there'd be about a million and a half waiting for you, with interest. You could buy all the instruments and tape all the music you wanted. And if the Musicians' Guild puts up a fuss, you could buy it, too. Don't let anybody kid you about the wheel, son. Money was mankind's first significant invention." But ten years! That's a long time away from home. Home is where the heart is, and you wanting to see your own planet go up in a puff of smoke? Why, even an ilf wouldn't say a thing like that!" Spano shook his head. That's too detached for me to understand. You'll find the years will pass quickly on De Morland. You'll have stimulating work to do. Every moment will be a challenge. When it's all over, you'll be only thirty-eight, the very prime of life. You won't have aged even that much, because you'll be entitled to longevity treatments at regular intervals. So think it over, my boy," he rose waveringly and clapped Clary on the shoulder, and take the rest of the afternoon off. I'll fix it with archives. We wouldn't want you coming back from classification intoxicated." He winked. Make a very bad impression on your co-workers. Han masked herself and escorted Clary to the restaurant portway. Don't believe everything he says, but I think you'd better accept the offer. I don't have to, Clary said. No, she agreed, you don't. But you'd better. Clary took the cheap underground route home. His antiseptic little two-room apartment seemed even bleaker than usual. He dialed a dispep pill from the auto-spencer. The lunch was beginning to tell on him. And that evening he could even take an interest in Sentries of the Sky, which, though he'd never have admitted it, was his favorite program. He had no friends. Nobody would miss him if he left Earth or died or anything. The General's right, he thought. I might as well be an alien on an alien planet. At least I'll be paid better. And he wondered whether, in lighter gravity, his spirits might not get a lift. He dragged himself to work the next day. He found someone did care after all. Well, sub-archivist Clary, Chief Section Archivist McFingal snarled, I would have expected to see more sparkle in your eye, more pep in your step, after a whole day of nothing but sweet rest. But General Spano said it would be all right if I didn't report back in the afternoon. Oh, it's all right, sub-archivist, no question of that. How could I dare to complain about a man who has such powerful friends? I suppose if I gave you the Sagittarius files to reorganize, you go running to your friend General Spano, sniveling about cruel and unfair treatment." So Clary started reorganizing the Sagittarius files, 
a sickeningly dull task which should by rights have gone to a junior archivist. All morning he couldn't help thinking about de Morland, its invigorating atmosphere, its pleasant climate, its presumed absence of archives and archivists. During his lunch stop he looked up the planet in the files. There was only a small part of a tape on it. There might be more in the classified files. It was, of course, forbidden to view secret tapes without a direct order from the chief archivist, but the tapes were locked by the same code as the rare editions. After all, he told himself, I have a legitimate need for the information. So he punched for de Morland in the secret files. He put the tape in the viewer. He saw the natives. Cold shock filled him, and then hot fury. They were humanoid, all right, pallid, pale-haired creatures. Objective viewpoint, he thought furiously. Detachment be damned! I was picked because I looked like one of them." He was wrenched away from the viewer. "'Sub-archivist Clary, what is the meaning of this?' Chief Section Archivist McFingal demanded. "'You know what taking a secret tape out without permission means?' Clary knew. The reorientation machine. "'Ask General Spano,' he said in a constricted voice. He'll tell you it's all right." General Spano said that it was indeed all right. "'I'm so glad to hear that you've decided to join us. Splendid career for an enterprising young man. Smokestick?' Clary refused. He no longer had any interest in trying one. "'Don't look so grim,' Spano said jovially. "'You'll like the Damorlanti once you get to know them. Very affectionate people haven't had any major wars for several generations. Currently there are just a few skirmishes at the poles, and you ought to be able to keep away from those easily. And they'll simply love you." "'But I don't like anyone,' Clary said. "'And I don't see why the Damorlanti should like me,' he added fairly. "'I'll tell you why. Because it'll be your job to make them like you. You've got to be friendly and outgoing if it kills you. Anyone can develop a winning personality if he sets his mind to it. I thought you said you watched the Tridies. I... I don't always watch the commercials, Clary admitted. Oh, well, we all have our little failings, Spano leaned forward, his voice now pitched to persuasive decibels. Normally, of course, you wouldn't stoop to hypocrisy to gain friends, and quite right, too. People should accept you as you are, or they wouldn't be worthy of becoming your friends. But this is different. You have to be what they want, because you want something from them. You'll have to suffer rebuffs and humiliations and never show resentment." In other words, Clary said, a secret agent is supposed to forget all about such concepts as self-respect. If necessary, yes. But here self-respect doesn't enter into it. These aren't people, and they don't really matter. You wouldn't be humiliated, would you, if you tried to pat a dog and it snarled at you?" Steph, he's got to think of them as people until he's definitely given them a clean bill of health," Han Vollard protested. 
Otherwise the whole thing won't work." "'Well,' the general temporized, "'think of them as people, then, but as inferior people. Let them snoop and pry and sneer. Always, at the back of your mind, you'll have the knowledge that this is all a sham, that some day they'll get whatever it is they deserve. You might even think of it as a game, Clary, no more personal than when you fail to get the Gardip ball into the loop." "'I don't happen to play Gardip, General,' Clary reminded him coldly. Gardip was strictly a U.E. pastime. And in any case, Clary was not a gamesman. He was put through intensive indoctrination, given accelerated courses in the total secret agent curriculum, self-defense and electronics, decoding and resourcefulness, xenopsychology and acting. There are eight cardinal rules of acting, the robo-coach told him. The first is, never identify. You'll never be able to become the character you're playing, because you aren't that character. The playwright gave birth to him, not your mother. Therefore—' "'But I'm only going to play one role,' Clary broke in. All I need to know is how to play that role well and convincingly. My life may depend on it." "'I teach acting,' the robo-coach said loftily. "'I don't run a charm school. If you come to me, you learn, or at least are exposed to, all I have to offer. I refuse to tailor my art to any occasional need. Now the second cardinal rule. Clary was glad he could absorb the languages and social structure of the planet through the impersonal hypnotapes. He had to learn more than one language because the planet was divided into several national units, each speaking a different tongue. Inefficient as far as planetary operation went, but advantageous to him, Hanvollard pointed out, because, though he'd work in Vangtor, he would be supposed to have originated in Ventimore, hence his accent. Work? Clary asked. I thought I was going to be an undercover agent. You'll have a cover job, she explained wearily. You can't just wander around with no visible source of income, unless you're a member of the nobility, and it would be risky to elevate you to the peerage." "'What kind of a job will I have?' Clary asked, brightening a little at the idea of possibly having something interesting to do. "'They call it librarian. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but Colonel Blinn, he's our chief officer on the planet, says that after indoctrination you ought to be able to handle it." Clary already knew that jobs on Demorland weren't officially assigned, but that employer and employee somehow managed to find each other and work out arrangements themselves. Sometimes, Han now explained, employers would advertise for employees. Colonel Blinn had answered such a job in Vangtor on his behalf from an accommodation address in Ventimore. You were hired sight unseen, because you came cheap, so they probably won't check your references. Let's hope not, anyway. End of Part 1